Chapter One, Part Five of Memoirs of Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Memoirs of Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds by Charles Mackay. Volume Two, Chapter One The Crusades, Part Five. Before they had time to install themselves in their new position and take the necessary measures for procuring a supply, the city was invested by the Turks. The Sultan of Persia had raised an immense army which he entrusted to the command of Kerboga, the Emir of Mosul, with instructions to sweep the Christian locusts from the face of the land. The Emir effected a junction with Kilij Aslan, and the two armies surrounded the city. Discouragement took complete possession of the Christian hosts, and numbers of them contrived to elude the vigilance of the besiegers, and escaped to Count Stephen of Blois at Alexandretta, to whom they related the most exaggerated tales of the misery they had endured and the utter hopelessness of continuing the war. Stephen forthwith broke up his camp and retreated towards Constantinople. On his way he was met by the Emperor Alexius, at the head of a considerable force, hastening to take possession of the conquest made by the Christians in Asia. As soon as he heard of their woeful plight, he turned back, and proceeded with the Count of Blois to Constantinople, leaving the remnant of the Crusaders to shift for themselves. The news of this defection increased the discouragement at Antioch. All the useless horses of the army had been slain and eaten, and dogs, cats, and rats were sold at enormous prices. Even vermin were becoming scarce. With the increasing famine came a pestilence, so that in a short time but sixty thousand remained of the three hundred thousand that had originally invested Antioch. But this bitter extremity, while it annihilated the energy of the host, only served to knit the leaders more firmly together. And Bohemond, Godfrey, and Tancred swore never to desert the cause as long as life lasted. The former strove in vain to reanimate the courage of his followers. They were weary and sick at heart and his menaces and promises were alike thrown away. Some of them had shut themselves up in the houses, and refused to come forth. Bohemond, to drive them to their duty, set fire to the whole quarter, and many of them perished in the flames, while the rest of the army looked on with the utmost indifference. Bohemond animated himself by a worldly spirit, did not know the true character of the crusaders nor understand the religious madness which had brought them in such shoals from Europe. A priest, more clear-sighted, devised a scheme which restored all their confidence, and inspired them with a courage so wonderful as to make the poor sixty thousand emaciated, sick and starving zealots put to flight the well-fed and six times as numerous legions of the Sultan of Persia. This priest, a native of Provence, was named Peter Bartholomew and whether he were a neighbor, an enthusiast, or both, a principal or a tool in the hands of others, will ever remain a matter of doubt. Certain it is, however, that he was the means of raising the siege of Antioch, and causing the eventual triumph of the armies of the cross. When the strength of the crusaders was completely broken by their sufferings, and hope had fled from every bosom, Peter came to Count Raymond of Toulouse, and demanded an interview on matters of serious moment. He was immediately admitted. He said that some weeks previously, at the time the Christians were besieging Antioch, he was reposing alone in his tent, 
when he was startled by the shock of the earthquake, which had so alarmed the whole host. Through the violent terror of the shock, he could only ejaculate, God help me, when turning round he saw two men standing before him, whom he at once recognized by the halo of glory around them as beings of another world. One of them appeared to be an aged man, with reddish hair sprinkled with gray, black eyes and a long flowing gray beard. The other was younger, larger, and handsomer, and had something more divine in his aspect. The elderly man alone spoke and informed him that he was the holy apostle St. Andrew, and desired him to seek out the Count Raymond, the Bishop of Puy, and Raymond of Altopolto, and ask them why the bishop did not exhort the people and sign them with the cross which he bore. The apostle then took him, naked in his shirt as he was, and transported him through the air into the heart of the city of Antioch, where he led him into the church of St. Peter, at that time a Saracen mosque. The apostle made him stop by the pillar close to the steps by which they ascended on the south side to the altar, where hung two lamps, which gave out a light brighter than that of the noonday sun. The younger man, whom he did not at that time know, standing afar off near the steps of the altar. The apostle then descended into the ground and brought up a lance, which he gave into his hand, telling him that it was the very lance that had opened the side whence had flowed the salvation of the world. With tears of joy he held the holy lance and implored the apostle to allow him to take it away and delivered it into the hands of Count Raymond. The apostle refused, and buried the lance again in the ground, commanding him when the city was won from the infidels, to go with twelve chosen men and dig it up again in the same place. The apostle then transported him back to his tent, and the two vanished from his sight. He had neglected, he said, to deliver this message, afraid that his wonderful tale would not obtain credence from men of such high rank. After some days he again saw the holy vision, as he was gone out of the camp to look for food. This time the divine eyes of the younger looked reproachfully upon him. He implored the apostle to choose someone else more fitted for the mission, but the apostle refused and smote him with a disorder of the eyes as a punishment for his disobedience. With an obstinacy unaccountable even to himself, he had still delayed. A third time the apostle and his companion had appeared to him as he was in a tent with his master, William, at St. Simeon. On that occasion St. Andrew told him to bear his command to the Count of Toulouse, not to bathe in the waters of the Jordan when he came to it, but to cross over in a boat clad in a shirt and breeches of linen, which he should sprinkle with the sacred waters of the river. These clothes he was afterwards to preserve along with the holy lance. His master William, although he could not see the saint, distinctly heard the voice giving orders to that effect. Again he neglected to execute the commission, and again the saints appeared to him when he was at the port of Mamistra, about to sail for Cyprus. And St. Andrew threatened him with eternal perdition if he refused longer. Upon this he made up his mind to divulge all that had been revealed to him. The Count of Toulouse, who in all probability concocted this tale with the priest, appeared struck with the recital, and sent immediately for the Bishop of Puy and Raymond of Altopolto. The bishop at once expressed his disbelief of the whole story, and refused to have anything to do in the matter. The Count of Toulouse, on the contrary, saw abundant motives, if not for believing, for pretending to believe. And in the end he so impressed upon the mind of the bishop the advantage that might be derived from it, in working up the popular mind to its former excitement, 
that the latter reluctantly agreed to make search in due form for the holy weapon. The day after the morrow was fixed upon for the ceremony, and in the meantime Peter was consigned to the care of Raymond, the Count's chaplain, in order that no profane curiosity might have an opportunity of cross-examining him and putting him to a nonplus. Twelve devout men were forthwith chosen for the undertaking, among whom were the Count of Toulouse and his chaplain. They began digging at sunrise and continued unwearied till near sunset, without finding the lance. They might have dug till this day with no better success, had not Peter himself sprung into the pit, praying to God to bring the lance to light, for the strengthening and victory of his people, those who hide know where to find. And so it was with Peter, for both he and the lance found their way into the hole at the same time. On a sudden he and Raymond the chaplain beheld its point in the earth, and Raymond drawing it forth kissed it with tears of joy in sight of the multitude which had assembled in the church. It was immediately enveloped in a rich purple cloth, already prepared to receive it, and exhibited in this state to the faithful, who made the building resound with their shouts of gladness. Peter had another vision the same night, and became from that day forth dreamer of dreams in general to the army. He stated on the following day that the Apostle Andrew and the youth with the divine aspect appeared to him again, and directed that the Count of Toulouse, as a reward for his persevering piety, should carry the holy lance at the head of the army, and that the day on which it was found should be observed as a solemn festival throughout Christendom. St. Andrew showed him at the same time the holes in the feet and hands of his benign companion, and he became convinced that he stood in the awful presence of the Redeemer. Peter gained so much credit by his visions that dreaming became contagious. Other monks beside himself were visited by the saints, who promised victory to the host if it would valiantly hold out to the last, and crowns of eternal glory to those who fell in the fight. Two deserters, wearied of the fatigues and privations of the war, who had stealthily left the camp, suddenly returned, and seeking Bohemond told him that they had been met by two apparitions, who with great anger had commanded them to return. The one of them said that he recognized his brother, who had been killed in battle some months before, and that he had a halo of glory around his head. The other, still more hardy, asserted that the apparition which had spoken to him was the Saviour himself, who had promised eternal happiness as his reward, if he returned to his duty, but the pains of eternal fire if he rejected the cross. No one thought of disbelieving these men. The courage of the army immediately revived, despondency gave way to hope, every arm grew strong again, and the pangs of hunger were for a time disregarded. The enthusiasm which had led them from Europe burned forth once more as brightly as ever, and they demanded with loud cries to be led against the enemy. The leaders were not unwilling. In a battle lay their only chance of salvation, and although Godfrey, Bohemond, and Tancred received the story of the lance with much suspicion, they were too wise to throw discredit upon an imposture which bade fair to open the gates of victory. Peter the Hermit was previously sent to the camp of Kerboga to propose that the quarrel between the two religions should be decided by a chosen number of the bravest soldiers of each army. Kerboga turned from him with a look of contempt, and said he could agree to no proposals from a set of such miserable beggars and robbers. With this uncourteous answer Peter returned to Antioch. Preparations were immediately commenced for an attack upon the enemy. 
the latter continued to be perfectly well informed of all the proceedings of the christian camp the citadel of antioch which remained in their possession overlooked the town and the commander of the fortress could distinctly see all that was passing within on the morning of the twenty eighth of june ten ninety eight a black flag hoisted from its highest tower announced to the besieging army that the christians were about to sally forth the Muslim leaders knew the sad inroads that famine and disease had made upon the numbers of the foe. They knew that not above two hundred of the knights had horses to ride upon, and that the foot-soldiers were sick and emaciated, but they did not know the almost incredible valour which superstition had infused into their hearts. The story of the lance they treated with the most supreme contempt, and, secure of an easy victory, they gave themselves no trouble in preparing for the onslaught. It is related that Kerboga was playing a game at chess, when the black flag on the citadel gave warning of the enemy's approach, and that with true oriental coolness he insisted upon finishing the game ere he bestowed any of his attention upon a foe so unworthy. The defeat of his advance post of two thousand men aroused him from his apathy. The crusaders, after this first victory, advanced joyfully towards the mountains, hoping to draw the Turks to a place where their cavalry would be unable to maneuver. Their spirits were light, and their courage high, as led on by the Duke of Normandy, Count Robert of Flanders, and Hugh of Romandois, they came within sight of the splendid camp of the enemy. Godfrey of Bouillon and Adhemar, Bishop of Puy, followed immediately after. These leaders, the latter clad in complete armor and bearing the holy lance within sight of the whole army, Bohemond and Tancred brought up the rear. Kerboga, aware at last that his enemy was not so despicable, took vigorous measures to remedy his mistake, and preparing himself to meet the Christians in front, he dispatched the Sultan Solomon of Rum to attack them in the rear. To conceal this movement he set fire to the dried weeds and grass with which the ground was covered, and Suleiman, taking a wide circuit with his cavalry, succeeded under cover of the smoke in making good his position in the rear. The battle raged furiously in front. The arrows of the Turks fell thick as hail, and their well-trained squadrons trod the crusaders under their hooves like stubble. Still, the affray was doubtful, for the Christians had the advantage of the ground, and were rapidly gaining upon the enemy, when the overwhelming forces of Solomon arrived in the rear. Godfrey and Tancred flew to the rescue of Bohemond, spreading dismay in the Turkish ranks, by their fierce impetuosity. The Bishop of Puy was left almost alone with the Provencals to oppose the legions commanded by Kerboga in person, but the presence of the Holy Lance made a hero of the meanest soldier in his train. Still, however, the numbers of the enemy seemed interminable. The Christians, attacked on every side, began at last to give way, and the Turks made sure of victory. At this moment a cry was raised in the Christian host that the saints were fighting on their side. The battlefield was clear of the smoke from the burning weeds which had curled away and hung in white clouds of fantastic shape on the brow of the distant mountains. Some imaginative zealot, seeing this dimly through the dust of the battle, called out to his fellows to look at the army of saints clothed in white, and riding upon white horses that were pouring over the hills to the rescue. All eyes were immediately turned to the distant smoke. Faith was in every heart, and the old battle cry, God wills it, God wills it, resounded through the field as every soldier, believing that God was visibly sending his armies to his aid, fought with an energy unfelt before. 
a panic seized the Persian and Turkish hosts, and they gave way in all directions. In vain Kerbaga tried to rally them. Fear is more contagious than enthusiasm, and they fled over the mountains like deer pursued by the hounds. The two leaders, seeing the uselessness of further efforts, fled with the rest, and that immense army was scattered over Palestine, leaving nearly seventy thousand of its dead upon the field of battle. Their magnificent camp fell into the hands of the enemy with its rich stores of corn and its droves of sheep and oxen. Jewels, gold, and rich velvets in abundance were distributed among the army. Tancred followed the fugitives over the hills and reaped as much plunder as those who had remained in the camp. The way, as they fled, was covered with valuables and horses of the finest breed of Arabia became so plentiful that every knight of the Christians was provided with a steed. The crusaders in this battle acknowledged to have lost nearly ten thousand men. Their return to Antioch was one of joy indeed. The citadel was surrendered at once, and many of the Turkish garrison embraced the Christian faith, and the rest were suffered to depart. A solemn thanksgiving was offered up by the Bishop of Pui in which the whole army joined and the holy lance was visited by every soldier. The enthusiasm lasted for some days, and the army loudly demanded to be led forward to Jerusalem, the grand goal of all their wishes. But none of their leaders was anxious to move. The more prudent among them, such as Godfrey and Tancred, for reasons of expediency, and the more ambitious, such as the Count of Toulouse and Bohemond, for reasons of self-interest. Violent dissensions sprang up again between all the chiefs. Raymond of Toulouse, who was left at Antioch to guard the town, had summoned the citadel to surrender as soon as he saw that there was no fear of any attack upon the part of the Persians, and the other chiefs found upon their return his banner waving on its walls. This had given great offence to Bohemond, who had stipulated the principality of Antioch as his reward for winning the town in the first instance. Godfrey and Tancred supported his claim, and after a great deal of bickering, the flag of Raymond was lowered from the tower and that of Bohemond hoisted in its stead, who assumed from that time the title of Prince of Antioch. Raymond, however, persisted in retaining possessions of one of the city gates and its adjacent towers, which he held for several months to the great annoyance of Bohemond and the scandal of the army. The Count became in consequence extremely unpopular, although his ambition was not a whit more unreasonable than that of Bohemond himself, nor of Baldwin, who had taken up his quarters at Edessa, where he exercised the functions of a petty sovereign. The fate of Peter Bartholomew deserves to be recorded. Honours and consideration had come thick upon him after the affair of the lance, and he consequently felt bound in conscience to continue the dreams which had made him a personage of so much importance. The mischief of it was that, like many other liars, he had a very bad memory, and he contrived to make his dreams contradict each other in the most palpable manner. St. John one night appeared to him and told one tale, while, a week after, St. Paul told a totally different story, and held out hopes quite incompatible with those of his apostolic brother. The credulity of that age had a wide maw, and Peter's visions must have been absurd and outrageous indeed when the very men who had believed in the lance refused to swallow any more of his wonders. Bohemond at last, for the purpose of annoying the Count of Toulouse, challenged poor Peter to prove the truth of his story of the lance by the fiery ordeal. Peter could not refuse a trial so common in that age, and being besides encouraged by the Count and his chaplain Raymond, an early day was appointed for the ceremony. 
The previous night was spent in prayer and fasting according to custom, and Peter came forth in the morning bearing the lance in his hand, and walked boldly up to the fire. The whole army gathered round impatient for the result, many thousands still believing that the lance was genuine and Peter a holy man. Prayers having been said by Raymond de Gilles, Peter walked into the flames and nearly got through, when pain caused him to lose his presence of mind. The heat too affected his eyes, and in his anguish he turned round unwittingly and passed through the fire again, instead of stepping out of it, as he should have done. The result was that he was burned so severely that he never recovered, and after lingering for some days he expired in great agony. Most of the soldiers were suffering either from wounds, disease, or of weariness, and it was resolved by Godfrey, the tacitly acknowledged chief of the enterprise, that the army should have time to refresh itself ere they advanced upon Jerusalem. It was now July, and he proposed that they should pass the hot months of August and September within the walls of Antioch, and march forward in October with renewed vigor, and numbers increased by fresh arrivals from Europe. This advice was finally adopted, although the enthusiasts of the army continued to murmur at the delay. In the meantime, the Count of Vermandois was sent upon an embassy to the Emperor Alexius at Constantinople, to reproach him for his base desertion of the cause, and urge him to send the reinforcements he had promised. The Count faithfully executed his mission, of which, by the way, Alexius took no notice whatever, and remained for some time at Constantinople, till his zeal, never very violent, totally evaporated. He then returned to France, sick of the crusade, and determined to intermeddle with it no more. The chiefs, though they had determined to stay at Antioch for two months, could not remain quiet for so long a time. They would in all probability have fallen upon each other had there been no Turks in Palestine upon whom they might vent their impetuosity. Godfrey proceeded to Edessa to aid his brother Baldwin in expelling the Saracens from his principality and the other leaders carried on separate hostilities against them as caprice or ambition dictated. At length the impatience of the army to be led against Jerusalem became so great that the chiefs could no longer delay, and Raymond, Tancred, and Robert of Normandy marched forward with their divisions, and laid siege to the small but strong town of Mara. With their usual improvidence they had not food enough to last a belingering army for a week. They suffered great privations in consequence till Bohemond came to their aid and took the town by storm. In connection with this siege the chronicler Raymond de Agile, the same Raymond the chaplain who figured in the affair of the Holy Lance, relates a legend in the truth of which he devoutly believed, and upon which Tasso has founded one of the most beautiful passages of his poem. It is worth preserving as showing the spirit of the age and the source of the extraordinary courage manifested by the crusaders on occasions of extreme difficulty. One day, says Raymond, Anselm de Robemont beheld young Ingelrem, the son of the Count de St. Paul, who had been killed at Mara, enter his tent. How is it, said Anselm to him, that you, whom I saw lying dead on the field of battle, are full of life? You must know, replied Ingelrem, that those who fight for Jesus Christ never die. But whence, resumed Anselm, comes that strange brightness that surrounds you? Upon this Ingelram pointed to the sky, where Anselm saw a palace of diamond and crystal. It is thence, said he, that I derive the beauty which surprises you. My dwelling is there. A still finer one is prepared for you, and you shall come to inhabit it. Farewell. We shall meet again to-morrow. With these words Ingelram returned to heaven. 
Anselm, struck by the vision, sent the next morning for the priests, received the sacrament, and although full of health took a last farewell of all his friends, telling them that he was about to leave this world. A few hours afterwards, the enemy having made a sortie, Anselm went out against them sword in hand, and was struck on the forehead by a stone from a Turkish sling, which sent him to heaven, to the beautiful palace that was prepared for him. New disputes arose between the Prince of Antioch and the Count of Toulouse with regard to the capture of this town, which were with the utmost difficulty appeased by the other chiefs. Delays also took place in the progress of the army, especially before Arcus, and the soldiery were so exasperated that they were on the point of choosing new leaders to conduct them to Jerusalem. Godfrey, upon this, sent fire to his camp at Arcus and marched forward. He was immediately joined by hundreds of the Provençals of the Count of Toulouse. The latter, seeing the turn affairs were taking, hastened after them, and the whole host proceeded towards the holy city so long desired amid sorrow and suffering and danger. At Emmaus they were met by a deputation from the Christians of Bethlehem, praying for immediate aid against the oppression of the infidels. The very name of Bethlehem, the birthplace of the Saviour, was music to their ears, and many of them wept with joy to think they were approaching a spot so hallowed. Albert of Eye informs us that their hearts were so touched that sleep was banished from the camp, and that instead of waiting till the morning's dawn to recommence their march, they set out shortly after midnight, full of hope and enthusiasm. For upwards of four hours the mail-clad legions tramped steadfastly forward in the dark, and when the sun arose in unclouded splendor, the towers and pinnacles of Jerusalem gleamed upon their sight. All the tender feelings of their nature were touched. No longer brutal fanatics, but meek and humble pilgrims, they knelt down upon the sod, and with tears in their eyes exclaimed to one another, Jerusalem! Jerusalem! Some of them kissed the holy ground, others stretched themselves at full length upon it in order that their bodies might come in contact with the greatest possible extent of it, and others prayed aloud. The women and children who had followed the camp from Europe and shared in all its dangers, fatigues, and privations were more boisterous in their joy, the former from long-nourished enthusiasm and the latter from mere imitation, and prayed and wept and laughed, till they almost put the more sober to the blush. Footnote. Guibert de Nogin relates a curious instance of the imitativeness of these juvenile crusaders. He says that during the siege of Antioch the Christian and Saracen boys used to issue forth every evening from the town and camp in great numbers, under the command of captains chosen from among themselves. Armed with sticks instead of swords and stones instead of arrows, they ranged themselves in battle order, and shouting each the war-cry of their country, fought with the utmost desperation. Some of them lost their eyes, and many became cripples for life from the injuries they received on these occasions. End footnote. The first ebullition of their gladness having subsided, the army marched forward, and invested the city on all sides. The assault was almost immediately begun, but after the Christians had lost some of their bravest knights, that mode of attack was abandoned, and the army commenced its preparations for a regular siege. Mangonels, movable towers, and battering rams, together with a machine called a sow made of wood and covered with rawhides, inside of which miners worked to undermine the walls, were forthwith constructed. And to restore the courage and discipline of the army, which had suffered from the unworthy dissensions of the chiefs, the latter held out the hand of friendship to each other, and Tancred and the Count of Toulouse embraced in the sight of the whole camp. 
the clergy aided the cause with their powerful voice and preached union and goodwill to the highest and the lowest a solemn procession was also ordered round the city in which the entire army joined prayers being offered up at every spot which gospel records had taught them to consider as peculiarly sacred end of chapter one part five recording by philip gould